Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm catching up with a leading Vancouver chef who was one of the first to roll the dice on letting an enthusiastic lawyer join his kitchen team. We talk about everything from the future of the restaurant business to the secret behind an incredible burger. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. On today's show, I've got a great guest who's helping me to look back over some shared years in the industry, but also to look ahead at what's in store for restaurants, for cooks, for chefs, and for all of us as diners in these restaurants. Robert Belcham is a very well-known chef in Vancouver. He's the chef owner behind Campagnolo. He's a partner in Pupina on Granville Island, which is operated by something of a super group of local Vancouver chefs. Robert is the president of the Chef's Table Society of British Columbia, and he's a veteran of fine dining cooking everywhere from the French Laundry in California to his own fuel restaurant back in the day in Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Robert is also the second chef to welcome me into his kitchen. That was in 2009-2010 at Refuel, and Refuel is what his fine dining restaurant Fuel had become following the global financial collapse and the need to change to a more casual concept for the restaurant. Robert and I talk about restaurant economics, about why fine dining is such a hard go, and why any restaurant is a tough, risky, thin-margin business. I think it's fair to say, too, that Robert is a chef's chef, which is to say that today's episode will definitely earn its explicit rating on iTunes. We had some classic chef talk. It's also fair to say that this is going to be a shift from the recent vegan episodes on Chef Timoni. Robert is perhaps best known for the whole animal butchery that his restaurants practice, and and his commitment to sourcing the best ethically raised animals is an example we'd all do well to follow. So are the dishes that Robert can create with those animals. He definitely does not take the cheap or easy route when preparing his dishes. In fact, I got Chef to explain the term seam butchery to me, and why that's important to distinguishing his incredible burgers from mass-prepared ones. And in explaining that technique to me, Robert gives away a secret to his burger's deliciousness. That's why all burger patties that are commercially on the market are all super, like they taste almost like pâté. Whereas when we grind our, grind our meat, we grind it very coarse so you can actually taste the meat in it. And that's the biggest, that's the big difference between the two. I just gave the secret away. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Chef and I also talk about Cook's Camp 2020, and that's an event that Robert is helping to organize with the Chef's Table Society of British Columbia. It's going to happen in Pemberton, BC, a little north of Whistler, in September 2020. And it's going to bring together hundreds of chefs and cooks and bringing them together to learn, to talk about the future of the industry as a whole, and together to create the world's biggest staff meal. In fact, they're currently raising animals that will be featured on the staff meal menu. Toward the end of our interview, Robert and I talk about some tips on equipment for home cooks, and you're really going to want to hear this. Robert's got two great recommendations on inexpensive but really crucial pieces of equipment that are going to help pick up your home cooking game. And I also got Chef to talk about a quick dish, a recipe that we can all put together quite quickly. This chef understands pasta, and I think you're really going to be impressed with this recipe. It's versatile, it's adaptable, it's quick, and it's delicious. All right, let's head now to the back room of Campagnolo Restaurant on Vancouver's Main Street. And here's my talk with Chef Robert Belcham. All right, here we are at uh, Campagnolo on Vancouver's Main Street. Delighted to be here with chef and owner Robert Belcham. I, I often talk, Robert, about Andrea Carlson, whom you know on the podcast as you know my chef and mentor. And Andrea was the person who gave me my start staging in Vancouver. But you are the chef who came next in line to her and had <laughs> me into a refuel. We were just talking back in 2009-2010. So, First of all, it's great to reconnect. Thanks for being on the show. I, I'm very happy to be here. I love talking about uh, the industry and the food, and I mean, we have a lot of old connections. <laughs> Andrea's a great one. I, I consider Andrea one of my best friends, and uh, she was one of the first people I met when I came to Vancouver from California. So, Awesome. Well, well, let's start right here before we get into the real history. Let's start at Campagnolo on Main Street yeah. in Vancouver. Tell the listeners what, what it's all about. So Campagnolo is a regionally specific Italian restaurant it is not by any means authentic but it is a casual 
place that you can go to you know as many times as a week as you want it's a very rustic it's very family centered there's always kids running around in here it's the idea is that it's just like the same kind of food that your nona would make for you if you're in a, if you had an italian grandmother <laughs> uh, that's the that's the idea and we cook in the italian style we don't like authentic food is it's, it's a funny thing you'll hear a lot of italian chefs about how, talk about how authentic their italian restaurant is here in canada and I mean, that's, all, that's amazing, but I mean, I'm not Italian. I've never cooked in Italy. I cook in the Italian style in that I use the ingredients that are from my own backyard and I try to let mother nature do the talking. And I think that's really at the heart of it, Italian cuisine. So that's what we emulate here. So it's really ingredient focused. Absolute, for, absolutely. It's the most important thing in any cuisine. But it's funny because Italy really lets Mother Nature always sing through. And then you go to France and it's a little bit more ego involved and you can tell and it's delicious. And then you can see that sort of trend around the world, like more rustic food, more country style food is always a little bit more from the heart and from the land. And then the, as you get more into finer and finer cuisines, it's more and more about ego and craftsmanship, or not craftsmanship, but the art, I should say, is a better way to put it. And I guess maybe more about manipulation of yep. the ingredients or maybe accepting ingredients from further afield. Well, yeah, it's more, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's, it's, as more ego gets involved, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying ego is a bad thing at all. Like, that's not how I'm trying to, to say it. But as ego gets involved, you, you want a bigger and bigger palette of ingredients to work from and to be able to you know stretch your imagination as far as it could possibly do and and that there's nothing wrong with that at all and there's some I mean there's obviously amazing food all over the world because of that so and when you say regional I think this is right that Campagnolo focuses more on or emulates more northern Italian yeah exactly yeah is that because our ingredients locally in and around Vancouver are more Similar to northern northern Italian ingredients. That's yeah. exact. That's exactly it. Like you go to the south, and it's you know it's uh, lots of citrus fruit and stuff like that, and, and that you know that's California. That's not us. So we stuck to the north, where there's still lots of you know dairy and pork, and and we use a lot of butter and dairy and pork in our food, and that's the same the same in northern Italy. So that's sort of why we did that. And pork brings me to another important question. Can you tell the listeners about your uh, charcuterie, your curing salumi program? Yeah, that, that's been going on here really since pretty much the beginning, right? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight. We did it at other restaurants before that as well. My first dipping my toe into it was at Sea Restaurant. Like a like so long ago, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's it's a uh, it all started out as a way to get the best highest quality pork I could get my hands on. We were doing it at the time at sea with our fish program, and so I love to use fish and pork together, or pork and fish together, however you want to put it. And trying to find high quality pork back in 2002 was very 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 difficult. So I started working with a farm on Vancouver Island called Sloping Hill, it's in Colican Beach. And Dirk and B raised the most beautiful Berkshire and Hampshire hogs ever. And we started a relationship and we would buy as many here at Campanula as time went on, up to eight pigs a month until they retired, which was about four years ago, I think. So we had a great relationship for a long time, and we have butchered a lot of pork here at Campanello. <laughs> almost <laughs> right. four, almost four hundred thousand pounds, actually. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So, what does it look like when you really? What do you? Are you bringing in whole animals? What are you bringing in, and how are how are your team members breaking it down and curing it? Yeah. So we. So the way we do it, and we and the way we've always done it is we work off the. We have a symbiotic relationship with the farmer. We tell them what our ideal sizes are and. We want. We always get heritage breeds because they're tastier. Usually, right now we're getting mostly Berkshires, and we bring them in. So we it's on a set schedule. So every two weeks we get two pigs, at right now, and they're around two, two hundred and twenty-five to two hundred and eighty pounds, roughly, uh, dressed weight, and we break them down depending on how we want to utilize them that week, and that changes every week. So we have done every. Um, conceivable preparation of charcuterie you can name and we just have this massive database of recipes that we can call upon any week that we have pig in and then just utilize them any way we want just because we've been doing it that way for so long it just makes it 
fun for the chef. Sure, sure. Yeah. What what is the like? What would be the longest cure that you've done or do to? Oh well, that's that's easy. That's ham. So yeah. we make a prosciutto style ham. We don't call it prosciutto because we're not in Italy. We call sure. it a dry cured ham. But we age those hams usually to three years, depending on the size of the ham. Because of the the intermuscular fat from the pigs that we utilize, Berkshires mainly now, we can have a cure that or a, a drying process of that long, and and it's an absolutely delicious ham. But that's definitely the longest three years. It's a big investment. We have, I can't remember how many it is right this minute, but it's like 25 hams going at any given time, and it's you know it's a labor of love and it's an investment for a restaurant in a massive amount of time and space. So. Sure. Yeah. Time, space, inventory. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of dollars of pork sitting in the fridge. Right. <laughs> right. For a restaurant, that's yeah. not a, unless you know restaurant economics. That's not a lot of restaurateurs will go. That's not a very smart thing to do. And then then there's me. Right. <laughs> right. But but that leads to an interesting question. So why do you do that? I mean, you're obviously making you're making a different decision from what is the most sensible economically. Well, it's it's well, yes and no. Yeah. Um, so there's three reasons why we do it. The number one reason is because we can use utilize the best quality pork we can get our hands on in British Columbia. So that's the number one reason. It's so we have access to the highest quality at all times. That's number one. Number two is that we can we can utilize it as a as a learning environment or learning situation for our, our younger cooks and it gives them a reason to want to stay and to learn while they're here. We've always been a teaching kitchen where we try to take young green cooks and try to turn them into sous chefs and chefs. Like we've always done that from the well since I started cooking that's what we've always done. And it works really well because in my opinion you cannot really know how to be a chef or a sous chef unless you know how to butcher and butchering a pig is it's pretty uncommon to find that in restaurants these days it's because of time and space and skill level and all that sort of stuff so that's the second reason and then the third reason is economic it's actually much more economical to buy whole sides of pork than it is to buy a pork chops and we can utilize the animal from nose to tail and utilize every ounce of meat and at you know the price point we buy it at let's use pork tenderloin as an example if you're buying pork tenderloin from a supplier it's 16.95 a pound we're buying it for the same price that you'd buy a whole pig for which is around four dollars a pound five dollars a pound depending depending and you don't get it obviously you have all this other stuff to use but it just makes you more you have to use your imagination more and utilize it in different ways to to make it work and it's much more economical actually. And so not only are the cooks learning how to break down a whole animal, what to do with it, but they're actually learning through that process what restaurant economics are all about too. I think so. I mean, it's worked really well for Campagnolo and I mean, there's there's a couple ways you can think about it. Like you only have one tenderloin or sorry, two tenderloins on a pig and you can only sell, so that's like four portions roughly. But then you also have these hams that you, you do have to hold on to for three years, but that ham that costs you in the initial buy of the pig, $60 and maybe $5 worth of salt, three years later is thousands of dollars of profit. So it all depends. It's, it's right. sort of the long game. Sure, sure. So. And, and worth doing on a number of levels in the interim. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about upstairs, the space upstairs. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we have Campanulo upstairs. It's a prohibition style bar that we built, or I built five years ago. Peter Vanderbilt runs that bar and runs our actual wine program here in the restaurant too. And it's a very, I wanted to build a bar that was, that I could go to and have a cocktail, like a very well-crafted cocktail and have a conversation with the person across from me without having to scream over the loud shitty music and the, and the loud <laughs> TVs and the hockey game playing. That's really what it was about. And that yeah. sounds funny because when you go to a bar you don't think that that's what it would be, but here in Vancouver, whoever is listening about this, but when you go to 99% of the bars here in Vancouver, that's what you're having to battle. And I, I'm a 46-year-old man, and I don't want to have shots of Jaeger and listen to techno while I have a Negroni. Right. <laughs> with my, Absolutely. With my girlfriend. Yeah. So, so that's why I built it, and that's, yeah. and that's really the only reason. It's a bit selfish, but... It's, it resonates with people because we're always full and Peter, like I said, Peter Vanderreep has done an amazing job and Tim, my business partner, have done an amazing job like, 
you know, curating the wine list, curating the drinks list, having the right people in there. And it's, you know, I like it because it's like, it's casual. There's no pretense to it. It's just, it's just a simple bar. Like that's what it is. And we have a different food program up there than we do downstairs. We, we, I developed this dirty burger for it. And it was just the only reason why we developed it is just to get people to drink. Like that's really the bottom line. Right. And it's got this sort of cult following now and it's good. I mean, if I was going to want to go to a bar, this is that camping club upstairs is the bar I'd want to go to. You'd want to go to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. (laughs) Um, We were talking just before we started recording about how time passes and, um, I can say as a 48-year-old man, so I've got you by a couple of years, but a 48-year-old man who doesn't have a lot of time for noisy bars, I'm grateful that you built it because <laughs> that speaks to me. And it's exactly that reason, right? You can sit down, you can have a chat, you can be there for, I've been there at times for half an hour, had a quick drink and a chat and left, and I've been there at times for three hours, right? Exactly, Where I've yeah. tucked into the menu and, and just made an evening of it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's very versatile and it's very cozy. It's not very big. It's, it's like 35 seats. And it's like, you know, it's whiskey focused and cocktail heavy with a very well selected curated wine list. So, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's, it's kind of selfish of me to build it like that, but, and every other bar owner in the city, I'm sure is probably shaking their head, but it seems to work. It seems to work. Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you get, I, I think I know the answer to this cause I've been there to camp upstairs with some industry folk, but do you tend to see a lot of industry? Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. It always has tons of industry and it's because I think it's for the same reason too, is like they want to have a place where they can go and have a conversation and talk to the bartender about the cocktail or the wine. Peter curates some really cool wines up there. We utilize a prologue system for really nice champagne as well that we started a couple years ago. And then the people love a good burger. So that's the other reason right. why we sell out of burgers every day. Right. And people say, why would you sell out of a hamburger? It's a hamburger. I'm like, well, because we grind it every day. Yeah. We make the buns for them every day, which is, and again, other chefs like shake their head at me and I'm just like, well, I wanted to make the best burger that I could possibly make. And that's why we do it that way. Tell us a bit more about the meat behind in the Dirty Burger. Like, are you, is yeah. that, are you using dry aged beef? We that? are, we're using, so, it's, it's funny. So my dream, because I love whole animal butchery and I've been a big advocate as a chef for whole animal butchery my whole career. And we wanted to, so we wanted to find a program where we could utilize, we wanted to get a program big enough to be able to utilize whole animal, but instead of pig being cow. And so how do we do that? So we started with the Dirty Burger. We would buy in beef necks and people were like, what the fuck is a beef neck? And then there's like, even the suppliers are like, what the fuck is beef neck? <laughs> and so it took a We're long time. we not moving to, a lot of those. Yeah, no, they aren't. They were good at dog food most of the time. And so we, would, we, would, we started with that, and we would dry age them in the house for 45 days, and we would butcher them down and then grind them every day for the burger. And then because the burger, the, the burger was becoming so popular, I had this opportunity down the block from Campanillo to open up Monarch Burger. And... It went from doing 36 burgers a night to doing 250 burgers a night. So we had to find, obviously, a different avenue for beef supply because there's... You're getting, not going to keep up with not beef gonna neck. Keep, not going to keep up with beef neck. So, so I was like, well, now we finally have that opportunity to buy a whole cow. And so we went to... We asked a bunch of... It's funny. It's, we asked a bunch of suppliers around town. And uh, you know who you are because you all said, that's fucking crazy. And... <laughs> And now they want my business back <laughs> because of the amount of, we go through a cow a week now. Right. Uh, or sorry, a side week. So two cows a month. And it's, we basically, we went to Hopcott Meats, which is out in Pitt Meadows. And they have a, an amazing sort of integrated system there, vertically integrated system in that they, they have, so the farm has been there for like 35 or 40 years or something like that, long time. And they have been raising cattle for that entire time and they buy really nice cattle from three different farms in bc they bring them to hopcott it sits in their feed lot for nine months so they get really nice and fat and then they're slaughtered in pit meadows which is about 15 minutes away from hopcott's butcher shop then they're hung and and dry aged for 45 days that's our spec and then they seam butcher it for us, and then we grind it every day. 
and people think we're nuts because we like put tenderloin in there we put the shoulder in there we put the brisket in there we put the short ribs in there sometimes we'll pull up like a ribeye or a strip loin or something like that if we're going to do some steak cuts for here at the restaurant but 90 percent of the time it's all it's, it's all into the burger it's all into the burger wow so it's a true like tip to tail or nose to, to tail burger and nobody does that like i would never i've read and tried to study and please send me an email or something if you if you know of another company that does it but nobody does it because they think it's crazy right so because they want to they want to break those cuts apart and, and sell them at a, at a higher level I guess. yeah yeah and even my butcher is like mike he's it's funny because you know he'll look at me and he'll be like grinding the meat and he like looks at me with a tenderloin in his hand and i'm like well, i can put it in and he's like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's it's just it's just sort of how we do it, and uh, we have and it's an amazing, it's a, such a flavorful patty, and that's why people love the burger because it's a patty that reminds it's reminiscent of what beef would taste like when they were a kid, especially people of our age. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, used a term that I don't know? What is seam butchery? Uh, seam butchery is like where you butcher in the seams of the muscles to try okay. to, to to pull out all the sinew. So a lot of butcher, like a lot of hamburger meat that you see on the market today is, it's ground so fine, it's like a, a fine paste so they can keep all the gristle and all the tendons and all the silver skin in that grind. And so they don't have to use as much skill to get it out or time. And that's why all burger patties that are on the, commercially on the market are all super, like they taste almost like pate. Whereas when we grind our, grind our meat, we grind it very coarse so you can actually taste the meat in it. And that's the biggest, that's the big difference between the two. I just gave the secret away. Yeah, there Fuck. Ah, damn, <laughs> no, but that's super interesting because not only is it beautifully produced aged meat, but the, the actual butchering process, even though it, you wind up with a ground product, really matters. Absolutely, it does. Every step of the process matters. And that's the thing about even the simplest food is, I think the simplest food is the most difficult to produce and, and I learned that very well when trying to produce pastas you know the simplest like uh, pasta uh, pomodoro like just with a simple tomato sauce it is the most delicious pasta that you can ever produce but it is it's like three ingredients right, right. so it's very very it's very difficult to hide behind anything it was interesting on one of the earlier episodes I did last year I interviewed a lawyer Chad McCarthy who's also a Cicerone and we were t I was asking him about because of course, he knows everything about beer. Of course. And I was asking him about what a, another buddy of mine calls macro brew, right? You know, the, the mass commercially produced the beer. The bats in them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he said many Cicerones, many beer enthusiasts will have their own favorites from within that within that genre, I guess we could call it, of, of mass produced beer. And he said, and I found this interesting, he said, those beers are actually not easy to make because they don't taste like much of anything so again there's nothing to hide behind if there's any off flavor in it oh, you're, you're gonna perceive it right that's very interesting i've yeah. never thought of it like that yeah, yeah. But that's so true yeah and i mean you can think of that in any sort of craft too like you know you try to you look at like architecture like something that's simple lines and and you can't hide behind all the bullshit of like the gothic columns and all that bullshit or you look at you know furniture making and these are the reason why I say these because stuff I'm interested in. But like the simple lines of Japanese furniture making, as opposed to something, you know, Edwardian, is like there's some things you can hide behind and some things you can't. And you can't. Yeah. Tell us about <laughs> speaking of people our age. Um, another <laughs> another fellow I, I interviewed and who spoke very highly of you and a number of your restaurants is a law school colleague of mine, Mark Gervin. Yes. <laughs> and. Uh, I'm wonder. I I know Mark has been a regular at a number of your places. Absolutely. Yeah, and I wonder if you could just comment on that, like about on, Mark himself. Well, no, no. Well, you <laughs> feel free to say what you like about Mark, but just about the the concept of a regular. This is something I've been exploring over the course of right. of the podcast, and to me, I think there's just some huge benefits to being a regular at a restaurant. Absolutely. And so, so maybe talk about it from the restaurant side, dealing with regulars. Okay. Well, I mean, I, let's start with customers first. So, sure. like, I mean, I learned early on that I. Because I was a private chef for a long, for a couple of years. That it's a being a customer and being a restaurant owner, or like the chef and the customer, or with the however you want to look at it from the restaurant to the customer perspective. It's truly a symbiotic relationship. And when you don't think of it as a symbiotic relationship, that's when things tend to go wrong. So if a customer comes in and just wants to be passive and not be in, engaged and just sort of like is just very judgy about everything, then they will never have a good time. But if they 
come in and it's, and it's the same with the with the restaurant too if they're very you know not engaging and not like very very you know uh, i don't know what the right word is like i think i know what you mean kind of, kind of stiff yeah or they, there you go yeah. thank you stiff that's that's a perfect exact example stiff and and you know they don't want to they don't want to be there they're just like an order taker they're like a robotic it's not going to be a great experience for the customer either so it has to be a bit of both it's like a give and take with the customer and, and the and the server the customer in the restaurant to be able to have an elevated experience an elevated journey from the beginning to the end and so that's it can be difficult for customers at the beginning because they aren't familiar with the place but as you keep continue to go and become that regular that becomes much much easier because you're just you get to know each other and that's one of the great benefits of being a regular anywhere whether it be a restaurant or a butcher shop or your bank people get to know you they know what you want they know what you like they know how to serve you and there's massive benefits to it because it just makes your life a hell of a lot easier right and you know mark mark is a great example and mark is he loves the restaurant business and he loves being the customer and he loves that symbiotic relationship and there's tons of give and take and he has no problem you know, telling you what was awesome and what was didn't work so well, and and you take it at face value because he really wants you to be successful. Like that's what's so great about what Mark does, and and we have other customers like that too. Like we have customers who have been here who have come from the day we opened, and they're here every week, and we love their interaction and we love their feedback because they know better than we are than we do sometimes. You know what's working and what isn't working. So right. when you have that relationship with with people, it just it can make your restaurant or any business much stronger. Well, Robert, let's back up a little bit now from present day Campagnolo and your your approach to food now, which I see as really, of course, ingredient focused, delicious, but also rustic and family style, mm-hmm. largely. And, and tell us about your earlier days, because I know you've got a, a fine dining background as well. Yeah, so my second restaurant that I ever worked at was a place called the Airy Resort on Vancouver Island. It was a very high-end, uh, fine dining restaurant in it was a Relais Chateau property which is its designation from France and it's it's just a designation that says it's in an upper sort of echelon of, of hotel and restaurant and it opened up my eyes to fine dining and I, I was very intrigued by it and the chef Chris Jones did a great job and it opened up my eyes to all these other fine dining restaurants around the world and that was where I first learned about the French Laundry and, and I made it my goal as a young cook to go and cook there. And I was lucky enough to stage there and then talk to Chef Keller about getting a job and he was he was like, if there's an opening, I'll, I'll give you a call. And then like literally a week later he called me and said, there's a butcher position open, are you in? And I was living in Victoria at the time and I was like, Fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, there, there are certain calls you don't say no to. Yeah, exactly. So my partner at the time, we we had just been married and we decided to move to California. That's where she was born. So it was a sort of a no-brainer for us. She wanted to move back anyway. So we moved to Napa and I worked there for a year and it was an amazing experience. And then I did, it was also like one of the hardest things in the world that I ever did. I learned how to truly cook there. And, and learn about how important ingredients are to the finished product and and learned a lot about service there too. But then it was, uh, when I was a private chef, that's when I really understood front of the house and really understood service because I did cooking and serving and at the same service, time. Yeah. So that was where it was like, no matter what somebody says, you sort of just have to eat it and then try to make them happy. And that was not easy as a chef, like at all. And then I came to Vancouver because we wanted to start a family. And I started working for Robert Clark at Sea Restaurant. And that's where I met Andrea. And that was a fine dining seafood restaurant. And I had this very overactive imagination. And Harry, the Harry Cambolis, the owner, and Robert were like, they, Robert as well as very active imagination and he made very interesting food and this is Robert Clark Robert Clark yeah and Harry loved having stuff on the menu that was you know fun and interesting and kind of weird and quirky and that was like right up my alley and so they just sort of let me go hog wild and for years I made the menu so fucking complicated and so crazy and it was sort of all over the place in just in its style we dab- We were the first to dabble in like molecular gastronomy, and this is back in like 2003, 2004, like way before anybody even heard about it here. We dabbled in so much interesting stuff, and the food was very, very fun, and 
it was very imaginative and very playful and it was and I was trying to do food that like this is even before what you know people knew about what they were doing at El Bui and stuff like it was it was very very well done and we had a degustation menu that was you know 20 courses long and we love cooking for people and all that sort of stuff and we had all the finest plateware and all that sort of stuff and it was it was great it was a lot of fun and I got sort of burnt out on doing it a little bit because it was just I don't know I think we're we were a bit ahead of our time for that place in, ter- in terms of reception from customers? Yeah, or, reception yeah. from customers and, and, and the food media, because they didn't really understand it. And, and also from, it was difficult because of just the economics of it. Like the, the higher end stuff, the more you manipulate the food, the more hands that are on it, the more people you need, the, the economics start to not work as well. Right. And we were very, like C was a very busy restaurant and we were making really good money. But at the same time, it was like there was like this sort of tipping point where it's like, you know, do we get that, you know, $15,000 shipment of China to make the plates look that much better? That or, much better, yeah. And it's just like sort of this tipping point. And, you know, I was, I was getting to the point in my career where I wanted to open my own restaurant. And, and I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do? And then I was just like, I'll never forget it, actually. It's kind of funny. It was one dino at night. <laughs> and I was like... So, so many uh, <laughs> moments of contemplation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, the dino at night, and, and I was sitting with my business partner, Tom Doughty, who was a sommelier at Sea Restaurant. And we we're like, let's, let's fucking do this. Let's go do our own restaurant. And that's where the, the fuel was ignited, so to, so to speak. <laughs> As it were, yes. And we, we worked our asses off to open up our first restaurant, which was Fuel, in 2006. And we didn't open it up to be that, a fine, super high-end fine dining restaurant at all. We wanted it to be more of a... Obviously, we wanted it to be have the service of fine dining and the sort of the backbone of fine dining, but we didn't want the food to feel fussy and, and pretentious at all. And um, I think we did a pretty good job of it when we first opened up. And it was very, people were very receptive to it. And the restaurant was my baby. Like we, Tom and I literally built it and like smashed up the floors for plumbing and painted and you name it, we did it. And it costs a lot of money <laughs> as <laughs> mm-hmm. the first restaurant always does. And it was a true labor of love and we had great great cooks working for us like unbelievable like these guys were chefs in their own right and they decided to come and work for me when they could have been chefs anywhere else and it was and they saw the what I was trying to do and what Tom was trying to do and they they really were behind it and it was it was a great it was a great restaurant and then then the economic downturn happened. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, for both Sea and Fuel, are they, and maybe it's like this for every restaurant always, but they're uh, sort of an expression of time and place, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and it like, was possible then. It's exactly it. I mean, all restaurants are, are totally an expression of time and place. I totally believe that. And it's funny, when you see restaurants that last 10 years plus, it's, it's, if they haven't evolved at all, then they're stuck in that time and place. And some people love that. And there are restaurants on this in Vancouver that are like that. Like, look at Le Crocodile. Like, I have so much respect for Michelle Jacob in that restaurant, only because he has been doing the exact same thing in the exact same menu for 30 plus years. And I know, per, like, personally in my own heart, that I could never in a million years do something like that because I always need change and new challenges. And I'm not, for what he, the discipline that he has to be able to continue to do that is just, it astonishes me. I'm in such awe of his being able to do that. So you sort of have to, it's either one or the other. Like when we opened Fuel, like we literally changed the menu every day and we always had new things going. It was constantly in flux. Like it was, like we lit, we did something that nobody had ever really done before. And, and I don't know if anybody who does it now is when you ordered a tasting menu, you had a choice of four six or nine courses and I hand wrote every menu like nobody does like I literally like what's their what are their likes what are their dislikes and then we hand wrote every menu the reason why we were able to do that is because the quality of the of the cooks who were with us right they could they were up to the challenge they were totally up to the challenge and that's what they thrived on and they loved it like like Ted Anderson like such an amazing cook Jeff Hopgood Alvin Pillay you know Jane Cornborough like like these people Paul Croteau like these people were like they were at the top of their game, and so was I, and it was so much fun. 
like, you know, I could say, you know, in the middle of service, we're doing 150 people at a 60 seat dining room. And I could say to Jeff Hopgood down the line, roast me a chicken. And he'd be like, yes, chef. And it's like, we have chickens prepped? No. No problem. We have one in the back, but he, and, and, and it's like, no problem. And it would, and it would come out fucking perfect. <laughs> you know, and that's like, you can't, like, there's no way that could happen today just because the quality of the, of the industry, sorry, not the quality of the industry, the quality of the cooks that are out there nowadays, it just, it, it just wouldn't happen. There's maybe one person like that in the kitchen if you're lucky. But right. to have to have the whole brigade like that is rare. Is rare. Why, why is that? What's what has changed? The economics of it all. Yeah. It's Vancouver's fucking expensive city, as we all know, yeah. and you know people have to live. And the best and the brightest who have been in our industry are not there anymore because of the economics of it all. Don't make sense. It doesn't well, make sense. And you'd started to talk. And let's go back to this a bit about the economic downturn. So that's 2008. Yes. Yeah, 2008, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. The global. And I remember. I, I think there was a quote I read from you about the shift from fuel to refuel when you retooled the restaurant and it came out as a more casual yep. concept. Yep. And I remember a quote along the lines of the linen that you were using at refuel. And I forget what the number was, but something like $1,600 a month or something. Yep. Like the costs run fine dining. It's not a, when you look at the incremental um, cost in China, linen, staff, it's not linear, is it? It's no. like exponential. It's exponential, and, exactly. And, and you can only charge so much for food on a, on a menu. Especially in Vancouver. Like that's right. the other thing too is, and you can see this, it's quite funny. You see this in, in, in the world and most fine dining restaurants around the world, like three, we're talking Michelin star restaurants, like three Michelin star, is that, you know, they'll have a three Michelin star fine dining restaurant with where they do 30 people a night and they have, you know, 30 staff. But right next door is their, is the, their cafe, the is the bistro. <laughs> yeah. is that's, and that's the economic driver of the, of the business. And that was, it's the same thing for any fine dining. And it's evolved a bit, but yeah, when back, back then it was like, it's so expensive. You know, when every glass costs you $9 and they break three or four a night, like there's the profit. And it's right, just, just it's, done. It's just gone, right? And then when you have an economic downturn, and you know you have like literally Oprah on the TV saying you know one way to save money is not go out to restaurants, <laughs> and then you're and you're like after she had said I think if you don't like something uh, just tell the uh, just tell your server you've got an allergy yeah yeah exactly yeah Thanks, Oprah. <laughs> yeah exactly and we were also we were like 2008 is when we opened up Campagnolo so we were we had bought a building we were you know spending all of our cash that we had saved and. I remortgaged my house and all this sort of stuff to open up Campagnolo. So we were being pulled in all these different directions. And, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, in the middle of the building of this place. And like, again, like how we always did it, we built it ourselves. I had an interview with a guy from CTV News and he came to the back door and he's like, I'd love to chat to you about you building this restaurant. And I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Of course, I'm going to talk to you about it. He's like, so why did you think that it would be a good idea to open a restaurant in the middle of an economic downturn? And I was just like, fuck, <laughs> dick. And because it, it was like, we had no idea. Of course. Yeah, you don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't know the downturn's coming. When don't know the downturn's the coming. We're also like, you know, head down in trying to keep this, to get this restaurant fuel up and going. Like, we're not, like, we had no real clue that it would be as bad as it was. And nobody did. And, you know, we, just, we were halfway through it. We couldn't really stop. Right, so right. So had to keep going. I remember being in Las Vegas, which is one of my favorite cities to visit, around the time of the downturn. I was there with a buddy, and it was eerie. Like, all of these high-end places. We went into a place that's now been rebranded, but it was called Mix at the time, and it was Alain Ducasse. Oh, yeah, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. his project in Vegas. And we went up, and the elevator doors opened, and there was this gorgeous chandelier and, you know, four hostesses greeting us and they were super excited to see us but we walked in and did a quick tour and walked out because we were the two customers in the restaurant there was it was a ghost town yeah and and that's scary right when you and i looked they had they had a <laughs> semi-open kitchen there must have been 20 cooks there yeah <laughs> that was just that like that was the thing right you can and how how hard is it to to shift like you have a business plan you're, you're running it the way you think it's going to run and then everything gets pulled out from underneath you then you have to figure out how to shift it very quickly. And something like that at a hotel, yeah, they have a little bit more money behind them, but at the same time, it's like, what do you do? What do you do, yeah. And Tom and I were like the same way, like with fuel, it's like, you know, the bank account kept on dwindling and we were like, we don't see an end 
to this anytime soon. So it's like, what do we do? We have to figure out something. It's either we close the restaurant or we or we shift, and that's what we did. And because we had always done things ourselves, we just went to our designer and said, hey, we're, we're shifting to a more casual place, and we we need help to make it more fun inside and seem more casual and all that sort of stuff. So got rid of the tablecloths, changed the tabletops, different uh, dinnerware. We painted it in a completely different color, all sorts of stuff to try to make it more fun and then completely revamp the menu. What was interesting is that we used the exact same ingredients that we had always used as fuel because I wouldn't compromise on that. And um, But we just did them in a, in a more easily accessible way. It was really interesting to get Robert's perspective on the restaurant business as a business. He's had a lot of successes and some concepts that didn't go as well, so Robert has seen what works and what hasn't. And he has what I think is important insight into the industry, particularly the challenges of opening and operating restaurants in Vancouver in light of building costs, but also in light of what restaurants can reasonably charge for their menu items. The business landscape in Vancouver has changed so dramatically since 2006 when we opened up Fuel. And the types of employees to find and how hard it is to find employees and yeah. how hard it is to keep them around and the expectations of, of wages and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's changed so dramatically. And Vancouver has gotten exponentially more expensive. And the city hasn't made it easier either. And opening a business is exponentially more expensive than right. it ever it has ever been. Yeah, maybe you can comment on that. Little, that was one of the questions further down my list. But what what is it like like operating in that context? And maybe you can talk first about the city side, the regulatory side. Like what what's changed or what's become more well, the, 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 challenging? The, the constant change when it comes to the city is it's not it's not what's changed. It's just that it changes every year. Oh, so okay. the, every year they change building code. So if you want to build a new restaurant every year, it's it's there's something else that has that's something different that has to be done. It has to be you know, it's just more regulated every year. Something has to be different, and it just makes it more difficult for a small restaurant to be built. It's just it just makes it more and more and more difficult. And I understand why they do it. Like the city's doing it for safety reasons. They're doing it for accessibility reasons, which is amazing. But it really limits the amount of small independent operators to be able to build a place because it makes it exponentially more expensive more expensive and so that's why we're seeing more and more of the chains i'm going to guess because they've got investors behind them and they can suck up the million or two or three or whatever it costs yeah. to kit out a new space exactly and that's what it is now it's like if you want to open a new restaurant we're talking you know 750 to a million dollars for a 60 seat restaurant or a 50 seat restaurant and and like thinking about the fact that well you know, people haven't changed what they desire to, to spend on a main course meal in the city. So 2002, when I first came to Vancouver, a main course salmon price was $26. In 2019 now, sorry, it's $27. Uh, <laughs> and, and if you know of any other product on the marketplace, and I'm talking any product that you, that's the same price as it was 20 years ago, or 16 years ago, 18 years ago, whatever it is, I'd love to see it, right? Because there isn't yeah. one. No. But food, everybody sort of thinks, thinks that food is, is should stay the same, and that's always been the challenge. Yeah. And sure. so, how do you how do you recoup that investment of seven hundred fifty thousand to a million dollars when right. you're when, when your salmon prices moved a dollar? <laughs> yeah, and and everything else has gone up, and you know the what are you going to make in a year? Like a million and a half bucks, like in sales, and you know you so and you and everybody knows the profit margins in a restaurant are razor thin, like two three percent profit. 4% profit, if you're lucky, 10% profit. So let's say 10% on a million and a half, 150 grand. And how are you going to pay back that million bucks? It's going to take you 10 years to do it. Right. And the restaurant business, then shelf life of a restaurant it's is... 10 years, if you're lucky. And then of that 150 grand, it's like what the profit, it's like, why are you working for that restaurant? Why are you working so hard? It's for that profit. But if it's just to pay back the build out, because you, know, you need to put a fucking elevator to go up six steps because that's what the city wants. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you, you sort of get to the point, it's like, what's the point of doing it? Right. And as, I, as I've gotten older, you see these other business models and these other businesses where it's so much less effort to make profit. It's like, what is it? Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, it's like the city government is killing small business and has been for a long time. And because the profit margins on restaurants are so fine and it's just it's it's all going to be 
massive restaurants. Yeah. And so those interesting little cafes and places and stuff are just getting harder and harder to build. And I don't want it's, to sound doom and gloomy, but it's just sort of no, the way it's, it is. Well, it's frustrating and it's challenging. And, yeah. and, and I'd like your comments now, Chef, on the on the staff side of things, because, right. yeah. And I mean, I, I interviewed a couple of uh, fellows that I worked at uh, Burdock with, and they both left the industry entirely. Yeah. Right? Because they, one is now a mechanic and one is working in software. Yeah. And, you know, they seem happy and I'm, I'm glad for them, but I'm sure they miss this industry, but they just realize, you know, like even working as a sous chef, you can't afford to, to exist in the city. No, I mean, well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you look online and you see what, what is, what's the wage of a chef at an independent restaurant in Vancouver? And you see like $60,000, $75,000 a year, if you're lucky. And then you see corporate chefs making $100,000 or $125,000. And that's a little, you know, that's a little better, but it's still not great money. It's good, but it's not great. And then, so then the sous chef is making, you know, $50,000 a year, maybe $40,000 a year, $45,000 a year. And then a cook is making 36 to 40. And it's just like, how do you exist as a cook at 40,000 a year? But at the same time, how do you hire a person out of school at 20 years old and give them $40,000 a year who has no experience? No experience. Well, like this it, is it. That's the thing, right? It's like, and, and so it's harder and harder and harder to find those people who want to actually cook because everything is exponentially more expensive to, to run a restaurant, but nobody wants to pay higher prices. So it's like, it's just the squeeze is unbelievable. Right, right. <laughs> and and it, to state it, the obvious, it's coming from both directions. Absolutely, it's coming yeah. from both directions. And it, and it gets worse every year. There used to be leverage in the business where, you know, when I was at, when we opened Fuel, I would have 10, 15 resumes a week come into my inbox, in my email inbox, and I could pick and choose anybody that I wanted to work. And it was so easy to find people. We treated them well and, and the working conditions were hard, but they were fair and they were good and you learned a lot. But now, nowadays, it's like cooks can literally come in late, sort of do their mise en place, and then bail halfway through service, and then they can get come fired. Back the next day. Come back the next day, and then we're like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, do we really want to? Yeah, I guess we have to because we, we have a massive party this weekend. Or if we decide to fire them, they can literally go next door and get hired because they're desperate for a cook as well. Right. So it's, it's so weird that the restaurants have zero leverage when it comes to stuff like that. That's why the way we've always done it in like trying to attract people because they're they want to learn from us, and then because we you know we're going right to the source for the product, we have more room. But at the same time, every year it gets smaller and smaller. At this point, I asked Robert to comment on the effectiveness of his strategy of offering real training and progression opportunities to young cooks. Not surprisingly, perhaps, we two old guys had a bit of an exchange on what's wrong with the younger generation. Nobody wants to work anymore. It, it didn't really come to that, but Chef did have some interesting thoughts on what matters to young cooks now, and how that's different from when he was coming up, and even during the early days of running his own restaurants. People who, young cooks who are, you know, green cooks who find that attractive is what we're looking, that's the type of cook we're looking for, who wants to be trained and find that training. We don't, I mean, it's becoming less and less of a draw nowadays because people are, younger people, and I hate shitting on younger people, like, because every, every older generation thinks the younger generation. Right, it's not just, working as, just, just nobody wants, wants to work hard. anymore. Nobody wants to work, every generation says that, but. They look at it from a different perspective and it's not as important as it was for my generation. That really great training is not important, as important. What's more important to them is, you know, how influential is that restaurant? You know, will it help them get another job? Is it, you know, is it big in social media? Is the chef famous? Is it, you know, it's all those other aspects that are more important than actually the on the job training now. And I think that that's wrong because that's not how I was brought up. And at the end of the day, how do you expect to run a, a successful kitchen and teach your cooks how to cook if you don't if you, have never, you haven't bothered to learn. If you haven't bothered to learn. If you don't know how to break down a pig, how are you going to teach a, your cooks to do that? If you've never made mayonnaise, how are you going to teach your cooks how to make mayonnaise? And a lot of a lot of people will say, well, we just buy mayonnaise. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you can do it. But if you don't know how to make it, you can't call yourself a fucking chef. Right. Sorry. <laughs> well, can you tell us a bit about, because this, I think, ties into the training piece, what you're up to with Cook's Camp. So Cook's Camp is, is an event that we're putting on 
uh, summer of 2020, September. I'm part of an organization called the Chess Tables of Society of BC, and I'm current president, and I've been president for two years now. And I've been on the board for seven years, and the idea of the CTS is to bring to the forefront the hospitality industry and the best parts of BC cuisine, and that whether that be the ingredients or the people in it or the restaurants in that as well. And so we put on events, we've made cookbooks, we put on events, we do all sorts of things to raise money to try to give opportunities to young cooks to explore everything that has to do with the culinary field. So one of the things that I, I'm super proud of and a lot of people maybe have misconstrued or, or don't understand is there's a great competition called the, the Hawksworth Scholarship Competition. And it takes young chefs and they do a black box competitions across the country and bring them together to to win the grand prize, which is $10,000 in stage pretty much any restaurant they want to in the, in the world. And it's an unbelievable opportunity for, for a young cook who's, who's got two or three years under their belt. Or for that, even for the seasoned sous chef, I mean, it's open to pretty much anybody who's, you know, not a chef. And the CTS, the Chef's Table Society, ponied up the 10 grand for three years for that scholarship. So we literally hand wrote a check of 10 grand to that, to that cook. And, you know, for them to go stage at 11 Madison Park or to go stage in France or whatever. And super bloody proud of stuff like that. And that's what the CTS does really, really well. And so in 2010, we did a thing called the Culinary Congress. Robert Clark and Rickard Bates spearheaded it. I was on the steering committee. It was such an amazing event for people who were there in the couch. And everybody remembers it super fondly and how amazing it was because it brought like 300 cooks from around the country together to talk about food and showcase their local cuisine and showcase being a chef. It was such a great event. I've always, in the back of my mind, thought I would love to, to recreate something like that in that style. So last year, I asked the Chef's Table Society board if they would help back Cook's Camp. And everybody was super enthusiastic about it. So it's to bring 500 and 750 chefs, sorry, cooks and chefs, everybody in the hospitality business together at North Arm Farm in Pemberton, BC in September of 2020 to have workshops about the industry, to listen to different types of speakers from across multiple industries, to have camaraderie and, and conversations about what it is to, to be a chef, to be a cook, and the sustainability of our, of our whole business. It all comes together on the second day because it's a two-day event in the biggest staff meal that's ever been produced. So everybody, yeah, so everybody who's, who attends is going to have their hand in you know, procuring, prepping, cooking, serving, and cleaning up the largest staff meal that's ever been produced. So everybody who attends is going to be part of the staff It's going to be part of it. Yeah. So, and we're all cooking everything over fire. There's going to be all sorts of demonstrations, speakers like Dave McMillan from Joe Beef and Jim Treliving from Boston Pizza, Vikram Vidge. Tamara Taggart, George Forget, a local artist talking about creativity. We're going to have workshops in animal slaughter and fabrication from Two Rivers Specialty Meats. We're actually raising animals on North Ham Farm starting now to serve at that world's biggest staff meal. Wow. Talk about tracing ingredients. Well, that's, that's it. Full circle integrated food and really understanding where your food comes from. Uh, it's amazing how many chefs and cooks really have no idea where their food is from, and this is a really good opportunity to be able to, to see that. Okay, just uh, very quick final questions and some tips for the listeners. Yeah. So one is, what's a piece of uh, of equipment? I was going to say home equipment doesn't have to be, but what's something that's underutilized? Do you think, or can really improve people's cooking experience? There's two things. Okay, and and I, it's funny because every time I go to another person's house and I cook, I'm like, how in the hell do you do this? <laughs> and the first one is, you need a cutting board that's bigger than six by six inches. Right. You need a cutting board that's at least two feet wide, to 20, 20 inches to, to 24 inches wide at least, and 16 to 20 inches in depth. You need a like as big as this tabletop. Yep. That is the perfect size for, for a cutting board because then you can actually cut on it and put your put the finished vegetables there. You can have your garbage there. You know, it, it just makes your life so much easier. That's number one. 
and wood like there's nothing wrong with wood it looks nice it can stay on your counter all year round and just gotta keep it nice and oiled and, and clean plastic looks ugly so you always want to put it away so that's why i don't buy plastic cutting boards some people say they're safer but i think that's bullshit and then the other one is a good high quality knife with steel so knife and steel are like synonymous that's like they go together they go together like you know your two feet and a good quality knife and it doesn't have to be expensive at all you can buy a high quality victoria knox plastic handle knife for 25 dollars, and it'll last you literally forever and and learn how to use a steel and as a home cook you may have to sharpen it once a year maybe right and there's a lot of great places you can take it take to take it to the sharp take it to the sharp you can get take it to the the knife shop in the mall or you can take it to or you find your uncle who, or somebody who knows how to sharpen a knife and buy them a six pack of beer at sharpening a knife or something like that. <laughs> or learn how to do it yourself. There's tons of YouTube videos. I don't sharpen my knives and I've been a chef for 25 years because I'm a very firm believer in hiring people to do stuff that I don't want to do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I don't like sharpening my own knife. Much to uh, David's chagrin from INO. Or Doug's chagrin, sorry, not David. And so well, they, those, would, they would sharpen your knives for you, presumably. They would, they, yeah. they would <laughs> definitely sharpen my and he <laughs> yeah. would make it like a bloody razor, so he's good at that. So those are the two big things. That's the nobody has that. Unless you're a chef, nobody has that shit. And it's right, a, it's a right. and it's so it's so simple and easy. Yeah, well, it just makes your makes your life so much easier. Right, great recommendation. That that Victorian Ox knife I actually bought years ago because I'd read an read an article on it. Yeah, and I, I don't have super expensive knives, but I got some slightly more expensive. But I bought this knife, and yeah, it's been in the regular rotation. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the thing. It's like they're not like they're you know they're made from stainless steel. They're not expensive. And they literally last forever and they hold an edge and they are not like a status symbol whatsoever. They are like a workhorse, like they're right. like the hammer in the toolkit. Like they, they just, the, and they're comfortable to use. And especially for a home cook, you can like literally spend as, as much money on a knife as you want, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Just ask Wang Dang, just ask Angus <laughs> Ann, like they have them. But if you have like just a simple knife that you keep sharp and, and don't put it in the drawer, that sort of clangs around and it'll last you forever and it's it's not expensive yeah awesome and last question can you give the listeners a super fast dish and yeah not even um, something we don't even have to write down so I mean you can describe in 30 seconds and they can make in 10 well, minutes the way I cook like so I cook at like I cook at home all the time now because I, I less and less at the on the line at the restaurant because I I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> I but hear I, you. My knees are... <laughs> yeah. So I cook a lot at home, and the thing that is the go-to is it's simple pasta. So you, having a box of Borrelia pasta or some sort of spaghetti or any kind of pasta you'd like at home, and then you go to the market, farmer's market, Safeway, Save-On, wherever it is you buy your vegetables, or you go to your backyard, and you literally find the freshest ingredients you can in there so and it and it's only one or two ingredients so it could be tomatoes and basil it can be literally a bunch of chives and some bacon it can be onions and some cheese it could be any like it's just keeping it super fucking simple and then cook your pasta then in the pan it's like saute whatever it is in a little bit of olive oil toss the two together and top it with parmigiano reggiano and every time it'll be a delicious dish every time because it's fresh it's fast and like it, it takes as long to cook as the pasta so that's like six seven minutes right for spaghetti or ten minutes for like for penne you know whatever you like and then if you top it with good ingredient like good cheese parmigiano reggiano which is the best cheese ever made it'll be fucking delicious and it, you can serve it to literally anybody and they'd be happy with and it and they're gonna love it they're gonna love it wonderful well, listen, Chef, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been great to catch up and, yeah, and, and absolutely. Uh, delighted to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm super happy to have done it, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with, with the podcast, and I, I, I can't wait to listen to see who else you get on this, <laughs> on this podcast. All right. <laughs> I really enjoyed that talk. It was great to catch up with Robert on the old days and to talk about the future of the industry. There's... A lot to be concerned about in the restaurant business these days, and I'm glad to see, because of that, leaders like Chef Robert taking the initiative to set up these big picture events like Cook's Camp 2020. I also appreciate Chef's tips on equipment. That Victorian Ox knife really is a great option. I've got one. I've bought one for my nephew, who's becoming a great cook in his own right, and if you don't have a proper Chef's knife, it really is a good option to consider. 
The knife shop that Robert mentioned was I and Ohm, and I'll put a link to their site in the show notes. And if I'm recalling correctly, I bought at least one of those Victorinox knives at the VCC bookshop, that's the Vancouver Community College uh, VCC bookshop downtown, which is at Camby and Hamilton. That's a great place to buy kitchen equipment generally because they stock the bookstore for students in their culinary program. So they've got some really well-priced, really nice stuff that's available there. And now... My familiar plea for ratings and reviews, please do take a moment to rate the show to give it a star rating, and if you like to write a review for Cheftimony, you can do that where you listen to the podcast, whether that's on iTunes or on one of the other podcast apps. And as always, I love to hear from listeners, so if you have a comment or a question or a topic suggestion or a chef or a lawyer that you'd like to hear from, please message me on Instagram or Facebook or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that's it for today. I'm Graham McLennan. Thanks, as always, for joining me here for the podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time right here on Chef Demoni. Chef